Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is dedicated by Ruth Langer to the memory of Rabbi Reuven Cohn, a friend, a teacher of my children, and a lover of Mishnah. Shalom. My name is Ruth Langer, and I am a professor of Jewish studies in a theology department at a Jesuit and Catholic university, Boston College, in the Boston area in the United States. I study Jewish liturgy as my field of training, and I'm really excited to be able to introduce Mishnah Brachot in this context. Brachot means blessings. And this is a tractate of the Mishnah that stands alone in many, many ways. It's placed into Seder Zra'im, the earliest, uh, the first of the orders of the Mishnah, but it in many ways doesn't really belong there. One would think that it belongs more with the Mishnahs that deal with holidays, with other ritual functions. But I think that the organizers of the Mishnah decided to place it at the front and center at the beginning of the Mishnah because of the importance of its contents. There's some evidence for this from medieval manuscripts where it appears other places. It belongs at the beginning of the first order of of Zeraim, of seeds. Uh, Once it's placed there, because it happens to be the longest. And if it were placed with the second order of seasons, Moed, it wouldn't be the longest, and therefore it would get buried. So lots of reasons for placing it at the beginning. Mishnah Brachot is made up of nine different chapters dealing with five or six different subjects. So the first three chapters talk about the various commandments having to do with the recitation of Shema. The second set of chapters, chapters 4 and 5, have to do with the central prayer of Jewish liturgy, with what I like to call the Amidah, some people call the Shemona Esrei, the prayer of 18 benedictions, and it is the prayer which compensates for the absence of the temple sacrifices once they no longer exist. Chapter 6 then deals with various kinds of blessings to make on different kinds of food. Chapter 7 deals with the invocation mostly to the grace after meals. Chapter 8 sort of begins with the grace after meals, but mostly deals with a bunch of conflicts between two early schools of rabbis, those of Hillel and Shammai, over things that have to do mostly with Shabbat and Shabbat meals and ceremonies. And then the last chapter, chapter 9, is something of a hodgepodge of uh, different kinds of blessings to make in different situations. What's really important and interesting about this is what it says about the concept of liturgy. If one goes and looks at liturgy outside the Jewish world, one hears discussions only about what happens in public contexts, in communal contexts. And yet Jewish liturgy includes not only what happens in these public and communal contexts, in what we think of today as synagogue prayer, but is really a rabbinic prayer, but it happens also 
when one's praying on one's own in private. And it includes not just prayers to God, but prayers having to do with every aspect of one's life, including what one says when one takes a bite of any kind of particular food, or how one says thank you to God after eating that food, or what one says when one sees a rainbow or a new tree and flower, or any other kind of circumstance one wants in life. So brachot is in a microcosm, the whole Jewish concept of how one is supposed to live one's entire life in relationship with God and thinking about that. What's missing in Brachot is itself also very interesting. Other than chapter 8, there's almost nothing about Sabbaths and holidays. They're all in the order of seasons, Moed. And there is nothing about Torah reading. And this is particularly interesting because we think of that as a critical part of liturgy today and a central part of liturgy today. This also has an historical explanation because we happen to know that in the Second Temple period, before the Romans destroyed the Temple in the year 70, synagogues existed, but their function seems to have been as places of study of Torah, either of reading of the scripture directly or of preaching about it and teaching about it. And the Mishnah places its discussion about study of Torah in the tractate, which it calls Megillah, which has to do with another book, the book of Esther, which we read on the holiday of Purim. And the last two chapters of, or this, really the second half of Mishnah Megillah, is dealing with the holy texts in general and the Torah and the place where that's read in the synagogue. So the Torah reading itself ends up completely separate in the Mishnah's organization uh, from the rest of the liturgical cycle. And this reflects a historical reality of its having had a different origin and having been merged with the rabbi's sense of prayer and prayer systems, maybe even after the Mishnah was organized into its various categories. So part of my mandate today is to choose one Mishnah in Brachot. That itself is not an easy task. And to teach about it. And what I would like to teach is the first Mishnah in chapter 5, which is in the middle of the discussion of the Amidah, the prayer of 18 benedictions that we say standing up in attention facing towards Jerusalem in commemoration of the temple sacrifices. Much of the discussion of the Mishnah about this Amidah, as about the Shema also, is about when you can say it, what time of day it ought to be said, what kind of situation it may be said in. Uh, they don't want you saying it in a place that's impure or where you're going to be overly distracted. And chapter 5 begins with a really intriguing discussion. It says, Ein omdim Begins, one does not stand up to pray 
meaning one does not assume the posture for the Amida, which is standing, uh, except from a situation of Kovad Rosh means literally a sort of a heavy head, but what they mean is sobriety, of being serious about what one's doing. Now, what does this mean? What doesn't it mean? And the Mishnah doesn't tell us anything more than that, but when one turns to uh, its parallel text in the Tosefta and also in the Talmud, then one learns that there are other words that can be used for this. They say one doesn't begin praying out of a situation of joking around. Somebody suggests, well, one, how does one get to the situation of sobriety? One should get to it from uh, studying, for instance, from repeating certain kinds of texts of study, maybe a text of Bible. But somebody else stands up, well, that shouldn't be a text which involves disagreement with somebody else, because that then will get you all riled up about the text, and you won't be focused on God. So let's choose a way to get ourselves into that situation of being ready for prayer by being focused on God entirely. Well, how do we get focused on God? That's really part of the, of the question and what becomes really important. So before I go back to that question and say what we do today, I want to continue with the Mishnah. And it says, Chasidim harishonim hayushohim sha'a'achat umit palalim. So the early pietists, some group that the rabbis are remembering, used to wait an hour and then they would begin praying. In order that they would direct their hearts to the place, literally. And it's these last words that need some extra attention. To direct one's heart leads us to the concept which in later speak becomes kavana, having attention and intention in one's prayer. It means to direct one's heart to the makom, to the place, which is an, a word that the Mishnah uses for God. Why does it use this word? Because the place was originally the temple, which was the location of God's dwelling, the place where we would meet God on earth. And so that becomes a term for God, even in the absence of the temple. One can direct one's heart to God, thinking towards Jerusalem, and even orienting one's body towards Jerusalem. How intense should this direction of one's heart be? Well, the Mishnah goes on, even if a king were to ask his well-being, were to greet him, he shouldn't answer. But what happens if a king were to greet you and you didn't answer? You'd be endangering your life. And that's the similar idea of the next phrase, that even were a serpent to be curled around one's ankle, one shouldn't stop one's prayer. Serpents are probably to be thought of as something like scorpions, something that would be poisonous, and if it were to bite you, you might die. So 
one's devotion to God, one's dedication to God, one's directing one's heart to God is meant to be so intense and so complete that one doesn't actually interrupt one's prayer, even to save one's own life under these extreme circumstances. I'm not sure whether we would follow it through to that degree today, but it gives us a sense of what they mean. So there are a couple things that we can discuss further in terms of the way that this Mishnah was actually followed through. The rabbis have another tradition about these early pietists, that they didn't only wait an hour before they started praying, but they waited an hour after they prayed as well, and they did this three times a day for all the various services. And the rabbis then go and ask, well, if this is the case, how on earth were they able to make a livelihood? And they sort of shrug their shoulders and say they were pietists, somehow it worked. But there's a recognition that maybe this is not to be taken entirely literally, but to be taken aspirationally, that one needs to give oneself time and a place and a way to get into the mood for prayer before actually jumping in. It's not just a business, a debt to be paid off quickly and run out and leave. So how do we get into that situation of thinking about God, of sobriety today? And that's a difficult challenge. Some people have started meditating before they start praying, but that's not the way that the liturgy itself developed. If one were to go to a service, a morning service, one would flip through pages and pages and pages of the prayer book, which mostly are psalms and psalm-like passages. And this is a later development, something that emerges probably by the end of the first millennium of the Common Era in its full form, where Jews actually used the Book of Psalms and selections from the Book of Psalms in order to achieve this state of directing their hearts to God. And the focal point, the center of these Psalms is Psalms 145 to 50, the very end of the Book of Psalms. But we've added to that additional things, additional passages. So we've added to that the prayers from the books of, of Nehemiah, which really gives us a review of our history and the fact that God saves Israel. And we have to think about our relationship in terms of that history, that God is the one who's looking out for us. And that then becomes followed also by recitation and participation in Exodus 15, the song that Moses and the children of Israel sang after they passed through the sea. And all of these are part of putting us into relationship with God as a way of thinking about God and being ready to offer God the praise that is the beginning of the Amidah. The Amidah itself, of course, begins with three blessings that are praising God. They're talked about as how does one come into the presence of God with complete respect? By coming in, showing that respect, bowing, and reminding God of that relationship that we have, that relationship that we've put ourselves in the mood to be talking about. 
Following that on weekdays, we can ask God for various needs that we have. But then we conclude the prayer by taking our leave, thanking God for the fulfillment of this relationship. This then is all set up as being in the presence of what the ancients thought of as the king of kings, what we would have to think about in some different metaphors today, especially in the American context where we have no royalty. But this is, to me, in some ways, the most thought-provoking of the passages from Mishnah Brachot. It's not the only one I enjoy teaching, but it's the one that I chose to share with you today. I hope that you've enjoyed this. Thank you very much. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.